Thank you, Lord. Um, I was I was deeply um, impacted by um, this word that I've been uh, studying past few weeks, but recently, um, this past uh, weekend, um, and a day before, just kind of really isolating myself and locking down onto what the weight of these scriptures um, is saying. Um, this is the first time that I've, I've preached on this context before, and, and I think the Lord made clear to me why. Um, I'm not the same person that I was back when I was ministering in the past, um, but it was challenging because it was so personal to me. Um, the, the series that we're pre- speaking from is called Good Works, and I think it's, it's, uh, it can be a little deceiving in our, in our humanistic ways when we, we, we hear that, you know, um, good works. Uh, we're always challenged with this concept of being individuals that want to portray or look a certain way, um, to model a certain way of living so that others will think something about us. Um, whatever that is, that is as, that we desire. And as Christians, we want people to look at us as these beings that live this perfect life, that we do the right thing. We, we read and unpacked. Um, we heard from Pastor Brian, from Jody, um, the past two weeks, and we pretty much unpacked Titus, um, chapter 1, all the way up to um, chapter 2, verse 10. And what it did was it, it painted this picture. Paul was reminding Titus of what it looks like to be a Christian, but, but to be a Christian in the midst of a, an island where sin runs absolutely rampant, where the ministers that are, are, are um, running the current house churches, they're extremely legalistic. Um, they're in it for the wrong reason. They're all about money. Um, where the culture is, is deeply being embedded into um, the Christian belief. So they, during that time, they believed in, in Greek mythology. So they would kind of mix or simulate their belief and, 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 and um, um, somehow manipulate the word. So the, the, the whole concept of their worldview, that who God was to them, um, was obscured. It was off. And this is what was being kind of spread out through that, that, um, that place. And uh, I'm sure Paul knew this. And I'm sure Paul knew that Titus' work would be extremely challenging, would be extremely difficult. So he sent him a letter. And in that letter, um, he went into great detail. Uh, and that first part leading up to where we are today, literally, to me, when I read it, um, it just, man, it sounds like a lot of instruction. A lot of instruction. A lot of do's and a lot of don'ts. This is what it looks like to be an elder. This is what it looks like to be a leader. This is what it looks like to be a son. This is what it looks like to be a father. This is what it doesn't look like to be a son, a Christian son. This is what it doesn't look like to be a Christian father. This is what it does not look like to be a leader in the church. This is what it does not look like to be a, a elder in the church. Um, and we look at these things and we identify ourselves in a lot of these verses and a lot of these scriptures and a lot of the description we identify our sinful nature we say well well that's me i'm struggling with that or i'm doing this um, so 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 w- my goal today and only because of what the following scriptures what lies right is to show you that the reality is really none of this has to do with our works none of these christian behaviors really has to do with our works and within within itself that there is actually something 
that causes us to respond with these behaviors, that these behaviors are more of a response and less this is something that I have to do if I'm a Christian. It becomes more of this is something I get to do. This is a way I get to live as a Christian. Does that make sense? All right. So considering all of these, these um, um, just going to quick overview. Um, one, um, chapter 1, f- 5 through 16 um, he's being reminded, Paul is, Titus is being reminded by Paul of his mission to establish new healthy um, elders, leaders in the church, which is outlined speci- in specific detail re- regarding the right Christian behaviors. You see this, this consistent um, compare and contrast throughout these, these verses. Um, in uh, um, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, he also reminds Titus in detail of the Christian behaviors that should be modeled by fathers, wives, and children so that the Christian household would not blend in with the typical Cretan um, household. Likewise, even the Christian slave should stand out, stand out through utter faithfulness and respect to their masters. Um, and I love how right before we get into this next verse in verse 11, he ends with the concept of um, or not the concept, but the idea that even slaves in their situation, in their predicament, um, probably experiencing a ton of injustice. Um, even in that sense, we are, are called to be utterly, he says, utterly faithful to, to the masters. That, that is not something that a lot of us can comprehend, even um, ourselves, uh, because we haven't probably experienced some of the uh, strenuous um, factors that come with um, some degrees of slavery. Uh, Brody, uh, Jody gave, sorry, Jody gave a, an example that it could be our modern day job. I completely agree with that. It could be our modern day job, and that's how we see that. And we're we're, we're meant to, you know, um, be faithful to our masters with who we are, um, with that integrity, with that faithfulness, with that loyalty, um, exemplifying who Christ is. Uh, but but we fail constantly, fail to do that. Constantly fail to do that because it is extremely difficult when we're in a, a, a situation where we know that we are experiencing injustice. We know that we are probably being pre- um, treated unfairly, but then we also know the freedom that we have, who we actually are in Christ. So it's this this battle, this war. So we reach this headliner. He gives all these instructions, and all of a sudden we come to this this point. In Titus verse 2, 11 through 14. So I'm going to read it. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing for all people training, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness um, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, I'm going to spend the majority of the time on verse 11 and 12 um, because after verse 11 and 12, he goes back into the behaviors, um, the response that we experience after experiencing this grace, this grace of God that has appeared. And that's the first thing I want you guys to kind of look at, the fact that um, he's saying, for the grace of God has appeared, right? So automatically we know that whatever this grace is that he's talking about, it's tangible, it's visible, 
it's observed, it's, it's witnessed, something was witnessed, right? Um, because it's using the word appeared, like you could actually see it. It wasn't this like, it wasn't like a feeling, you know? Um, it wasn't the sense of like intuition. It actually appeared, this grace of God, it actually appeared. And then it says, bringing salvation for all people. So that part right there lets us know who, who now this grace of God is talking about, who it's referring to. Because we, it, was, it was Christ, right? It was Jesus that, that brought, is the one that brought this salvation through his sacrifice, right? So we know now that he's talking about a person. He's talking about the person of Christ. But what's interesting is that appeared is past tense. So we know that this is something that happened. Christ came. He died for our sins. He saved us, right? That happened. That act happened. But then following that, it says bringing, bringing, which is not a past tense. It's present, which means it's happening like now, okay? Um, so we know that there's two, he, there's two audiences here. He's talking about all people. He says all people. So that's everyone, that, that, that salvation was made available for all people. We know that. But then he goes on to say, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Training us. So now he's being particular. He's pointing someone out now, or he's pointing a group of people out. He's pointing those that believe. And he, what, he's letting us know that there is a training that takes place that leads us ultimately to godliness. So what I want to do is I want to, um, and this kind of happened by accident, but I want us to go to um, the book of John. Um, we've all probably heard about the story of Lazarus. Um, so I want to I use that to kind of unpack this type of grace that, that Christ is talking about that ultimately leads to this way of life, right? What does this look like practically? What does it look like for this grace that is present, that is constant, that supposedly is working in our lives in the midst of our situations, what does that look like? So it's going to be John 11. I'm sorry, guys. John 11. So you have, you have uh, um, Marthy, uh, Martha, sorry, Mary, and uh, Lazarus, and they're all actually siblings. And um, Mary was actually the woman who washed Jesus' feet with perfume and, and with her hair. Um, you knew that this was a woman that loved God. They all loved God. They adored God, and God, vice versa, loved and adored them. Um, and he, she, I, I believe it was, I don't know if it was Mary or Martha. You can look it up. It's in the beginning. Um, writes him a letter, sends him a letter, and says that the one that you love um, has died. And um, it's so interesting because he, he knew that, no, he said the one that you love is sick, right? Um, but then immediately he knew that Lazarus was going to die. He knew that. Um, but then he decides to, to wait two more days. Like he says, I'm going to stay and wait two more days before he goes out um, and goes to them. Um, but what's beautiful is that he said, eventually, after those two days, he said to his disciples, um, that Lazarus is sleeping, and then he says to them, you know, but we're going to go to him. We're going to go to him. So we see right here this first example of this, this appearance that we know is going to take place, and that what that looks like is Christ 
meeting us, right? He comes to us. We don't necessarily go to him. He comes to us. Um, so I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to start at verse 13 in chapter 11. It says, Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about his natural sleep. So Jesus, Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. So th- there's a point that I want to make because it's, 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 very, it's, it's very strange for the word glad to be used when we know that someone that we loved has just passed. It doesn't make sense to the human mind, our emotions, our makeup, for us to experience any type of gladness or to even hear that. A lot of us would take that offensively. We would say, what do you mean you're glad? Like someone just passed, right? That's devastating. But he doesn't say that. He says, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there. So we know automatically that this grace, this saving grace, it takes our suffering and makes purpose out of it. We know that. We know that. Because what is he glad about? What, What would there be any reason for him to have any joy unless there was an anticipation of something joyous that was going to take place. So we know that there is, in our suffering, when Christ meets us, there is purpose in that suffering that we're experiencing. Can we also agree that that suffering is imminent? Can we agree with that? Can we agree that trying to escape suffering in this life is a waste of time? That no matter what, we're going to experience suffering. We're in broken bodies. I mean, it, it, it is, there's a quote here. I, I, I just wrote this, and I said, can the application of instruction truly be enough to change a biological, mental, and spiritual disposition to, to decline? We know that our behaviors are a representation of our human condition. We know that ju- just just... Just this Bible, the the words on the page, we know that it's not enough to combat the fact that everything about this world, everything about who we are, is only on a decline. Just practically, biologically, man, we're getting so messed up just from the foods that we purchase on a day-to-day basis in the grocery store. Because a lot of it is poison. It's full of hormones, and and, and and you all know I can go for days on this this stuff. So I'm not going to do that. But you get my point. Um, (laughs) um, Mentally, forget it. I mean, mentally, mental health is just another, it's another discussion. It's another topic. But we know that, man, we're suffering mentally. That it's, it's, it's no longer a secret that our minds are being just as affected as our bodies, if not more. And it causes such a, a devastation in our lives, in our society. Our mental state bleeds through everything. And we know that with the world that we live in, you just turn on the news and you're affected mentally. Or how about social media? Go on social media. Ask yourselves, how many times do you go on social media? Or ask yourselves, how many times do you find yourself scrolling through? And how many different emotions do you experience in a matter of an hour based on who you follow? You have these frustrations, and then you're probably some lusting, 
And then you're, oh, wow, that's, you, know, something, you have something that you want to chase now. Like there's, there's, there's a ton of emotions that are fluttering through your mind miles per hour, just causing all this anxiety. And then spiritually, sin, the weight of sin in itself crushes our spirit constantly. Constantly, the weight of sin crushes and bears down on our spirit that longs for God. Constantly. So we go back to this. We know that there's suffering and we know and we can see in this example that, that, that Jesus has, a, he has some type of purpose. He's going to utilize our suffering to create something joyous. And we know that, that whatever that is will lead us to a belief. A true belief. Not just, not just everyone, yeah, everyone believes. But a true belief that's full of conviction. So verse 20 through 25, I'm going to skip and I'm going to read this. And it says, as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Excuse me. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. So here we know that there is some type of... Um, there is some type of struggle in her belief that's taking place because Jesus is present. And she says, on one hand, I know that if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened, right? But on the other hand, she, she says something that kind of contradicts what she said over here. But I know all things are possible, right? So there's this fear that What's done is done, and, like, I lost my brother. But then there is this somewhat belief that, but I know that, you know, if you ask God, you could do anything. But let's unpack that disbelief a little bit more. It says, your brother will rise again. Jesus told her. But look at what she says. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Okay. So I want to I paint a picture because I believe that here, here's, here's a pivotal point. This is, this is where a lot of us struggle in our faith. This is why a lot of us struggle to live a godly life in the midst of sin. It's, it, it's right here. I want you to see where her belief is actually anchored. Because there's a belief there. I'm not, I'm not denying her belief. She, she believes in Jesus. She believes that he's the son of God. She believes that he's saved, saved us like many of us here. But there's a part of her belief that is, is missing. She says, yet even I know, no, no, I'm sorry. Where was I? Uh, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Listen to how Jesus responds to her. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. But that first part, I am the resurrection, the way that he postured that, the way that he responded to her, in other words, he's like, do you not see I'm right here? Do you not see who I am? 
It doesn't matter if I, I, I wasn't here for two days. It doesn't matter if I wasn't there when the act happened presently, physically. But I am life. I am the resurrection. She couldn't even identify what her disbelief was. He did. Her belief was tied to what happened and what's going to happen. Does that make sense? Her belief was tied to what happened. Well, not yet. I can't use that example. We can. But her belief is tied to what is going to happen in the last day. So, of course, God, I, yes, I know. He's going to rise. He loves you. You loved him. You guys, you know, he's one with you. And in the last day, he will be with you forever. And Jesus is simply identifying that you're missing something here. You're missing something. See, Christ, Christ didn't die. Christ didn't die for us, right, 2,000 years ago. Give us a word and tell us, tell us, here's the word. You believe that I died. Now go live right and be an example to others. You know why? Because it's not possible for us to do that. It's not possible. Our human disposition leans towards lawlessness, leans towards death and sin. When we wake up in the morning, that is our disposition. We cannot change that. We cannot fight that. You can practice all you want. These scriptures, you can read them as many times as you want. You can try to avoid as much sin as you want. But your heart is decrepit. It's lawless. It constantly wanders. So what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that Christ knows that intimacy and being present is necessary for us to live a godly life here on this earth. And I think that's, I think, at least for myself, at least for myself, that is where, where I've struggled. God, I believe in you. I know what you've done for me. But I'm going through this right now. I'm experiencing this pain, this suffering, presently, now, and I don't see you. How many times have we asked ourselves those questions like, well, it would have been different if I was there with him, if I experienced that walk with him physically. We ask ourselves all the time, but we know that's not true because it's happening right here. They were literally walking with him and could not identify who he was in his totality. They were physically with him, and, and he had to look at her and say, don't you, don't you see? Not only am I present, but I am life. Time doesn't have a, a barrier. We know that she's struggling with her faith. We know that although she sees Jesus, we know that she also sees the weight of sin and death. So she's, she's wrestling with these two. And because she doesn't see Christ in his totality, she doesn't see Jesus in his totality, the weight of sin and death in her eyesight, it, it, it's bigger. So she still has this fear and anxiety even though he's right there. He's present. He says, your brother will rise. She told Martha, said to him, I know, I know I'll see him rise again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Like that part. Because I'm going back to our, our traditional belief. We, we believe Jesus died for us. We believe he rose on the third day. We believe that he's coming back for us to save us from sin and lawlessness. But do we believe that he's presently with us? Do we believe that his Holy Spirit is guiding us and is intimate with his children that believe? This concept, this idea, this belief, this ideology, is, it is impossible, it is impossible to be able to, to endure what happens in this world on a day-to-day basis, whether you have money or no money, a job or no job, a marriage or no marriage, it doesn't make a difference. You will experience suffering. And you will need more than a distant belief to be able to live a godly life in the midst of that. To be able to be an example. God knows that. So what does he do? He draws and builds that conviction in us. This saving grace that he brings about, it is constant. It didn't just happen 2,000 years ago. It is present with us. And he's literally meeting us where we're at. He's meeting us presently where we're at. I can, I can, I can, I can look at my life and I can tell you there was a time where I lived and I read Titus. I read Titus and the way I would preach it would be, look, you see, this is how we have to live. We got to be, this is how, this is what we have to do. But completely oblivious to, to, to God's saving grace. Completely oblivious to it. When you understand the process of justification and you understand that it is grace that opened the door to justification, you also understand that Christ and his work is what leads to our faith. When you look at all of what's necessary to be saved, none of it has to do with who we are. None of it has to do with one of our actions. From the moment we began to believe it was not us, it was him. Because of his initial works. I didn't write down the verse, but in, 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 in Timothy, it talks about how this grace, this saving grace of God was there from the beginning of time. It was already active. So it's a matter of us becoming aware of what that grace is. It's opening our eyes or pleading with God because we know we can't do it on ourselves. We cannot do it ourselves. We have to plead with the Lord, wrestle with him if you're not seeing it. If you're seeing it, if you're aware of that grace actively in your life, if you're aware of that suffering that's taking place and you're seeing how he's intervening and meeting you where you are, he is training you. That, time, that whole time thing that he was doing with, with, uh, with um, Mary and Martha, waiting two days, what, 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 do you think, what do you think he was doing? What do you think he was doing? He was building and stretching their faith. He was training them. See, we hear this training and we associate it to the good works. 
And we look at we look at practical training here, how we do things here on this earth. And you know, if you're in a sport, you know what the training looks like. You do the same things over and over and over and over and over again. And, and then with, with enough conditioning, eventually when it comes down to perform, you respond the right way because you've done these practices over and over. This is not how Christ trains us. Christ loves us relentlessly. And he pursues us relentlessly. And he draws us in relentlessly. And then he comes into our pile of garbage, digs us out consistently because of his grace. And then what begins to happen in our hearts we become overwhelmed with the way that he loves us. We become compelled to respond to this one that we believe in. It's, it, it's drawn out of us. You didn't make a decision to, to do the right thing. No, you fell in love. If you live a Christian life and you try to teach people how to live, and that's, that's what you do, you hit them over the head with the gospel, you tell them that Jesus died and saved you, you need to believe in him, and here's how you should, don't do that. Don't live like that. Do you realize that grace is not attached? It's not about the behavior. It's about the grace that is encrypted in that behavior. The saving grace of God that is encrypted in that behavior it's not the same to just teach someone how to live or tell them what they're doing is wrong. Because what will happen? They will say, okay, I'm going to try to live like that. And then life will hit them over the head. And they'll lose something. Their identity and their good works will be crushed. And then they blame God for it. We must understand this concept of grace if we even want to attempt at this this godly living, these works. Grace is where it begins. Grace is where it ends. And it's the only thing that is transferable. It's the only thing. The way that we meet others and we see them come to the Lord, it is through grace. I'm going to finish off with this. Well, you know what? Two more things. Sorry, guys, in the back. John 32. John 30. Let me read through this. It said, as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here. Once again, now, now, now Mary's saying this. Martha said it. Now Mary's saying it. Lord, if you had been here, my brother, he would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled. And then he asked, where have you put him? This stuck out to me because you see there's a transition in, in, in Jesus' state. So in the beginning, I'm glad we're, we're, we're going to, to see him, right? He knows what's, what's going to unveil, what's going what's to happen. He knows that this is going to lead to a greater belief, right? But then he meets Mary, and Mary begins to cry. He sees her suffering, but then, and then he feels her suffering. And then he joins her in her suffering. And then he responds to her suffering. He weeps. See, we don't, we don't serve a God that 
that lives a distant life. We don't serve a God that is awful far, that cannot relate to what we feel, who we are, and the pain that we're experiencing. Christ joins us. Now, how do we experience that in the present time? I can, I can ring off a hundred examples in my personal life when I was experiencing trauma. And there were people, people, individuals that understood this concept of grace. And what I came to understand that it was, it was not the person. It was Christ meeting me where I was presently. Man, guys, if that doesn't freaking rock you, if that doesn't wrench your heart, I don't know, I don't know what will the fact that in this present age, in the midst of my sin, the things that I was doing, I was so intentional, man. I was so bitter. I was so angry at God, and I was so, I was so intentional about going the other way because I blamed him. And in the midst of me disrespecting women, giving up on, on the individuals that I was once a pastor not too long ago over, you know, Christ didn't look at me and, you know, how could you? How could you? Look at these people that know what you're doing, know where you're at. He didn't do that. He met me in my pile of garbage. And he began to just dig me out little by little. That's the God that we serve. That's the saving grace that's being spoken of. That's the saving grace that appeared, that is constant, that is training us, that is leading us to godliness. We need to stop beating ourselves up and simply begin to understand and believe that God is present. So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his, his, his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said, I said this, so that they may believe you who sent me. Therefore, many, many, not just Mary and Martha, it wasn't about them. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did, believed. Everything that was done and everything that is done is so that we would genuinely believe. I wrote this down. I said, this belief that leads to godliness, oh yeah, I already said it, leads to, um, um, is only transferable by grace. I made that point already. And then just a quote that, I don't know if they have it back there, but um, God's saving grace is the encryption of his holy word. To those that believe, it is seen, it is observed, it is experienced, and then it's modeled. But to those that do not believe, his grace is absolutely invisible. So you know that scripture that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? You know when you want to fear? When your awareness of his grace is just absent. 
That's when you get on your hands and knees. And you say, Lord, I am not aware of your grace. I'm not experiencing it. It is not having an, an effect on me. Amen? Amen.